Thank you for taking the time to listen to today's episode. As you know, the current crisis in Myanmar is extremely concerning, and we appreciate that you're taking the time to be informed about what's happening. There's value even in just becoming aware and helping to inform others. So please consider sharing this episode so that more people may learn about what is really happening in the country, as it's critical to ensure that this issue remains present in the public discourse. For now, let's get on to the interview that follows. Well, you have one life, and you might as well go for it, because what are you going to hold on to? Here's some more night sounds. This is 28 June on a Monday, and... I grew up as a missionary kid in Thailand. I remember thinking, I think I'm more of a soldier. I felt God had something else for me to do. Now we just hear insects, but there's machine gun and mortar right before this. Inside a small stream. Sounds like I live a kilometer away from this village. And then M79 round, some more static shooting. sound of the guns, go to the sound of need, and trust God to show you how you can be useful. I'm in the field just outside the Good Lives Club children program here on 26 June 2021 at Dotiplaw. David Eubank, a former Special Forces captain, has gone on to found a relief group called the Free Burma Rangers. sounds of the jungle as we walk. I felt God's voice, get on your knees and pray. Get on my knees. I look like a Christian nutcase, man. And here's some sounds of the buffalo with their little wooden bells grazing. You hear this anytime you get near a village.
I'm so pleased to be joined today on Insight Myanmar podcast by Dave Eubank of the Free Burma Rangers. David, we've been trying so long to connect. I'm really glad we are finally able to do so now. Thank you. And one reason is we're in the same country finally. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, I'm really honored to be speaking with someone whose life and whose story have provided this endless inspiration for me, and not only on the subject of advocacy for the Burmese people, but also on simply what it means to be a good human being with a loving heart and to walk with an intention to sacrifice, sacrifice comforts and safety on behalf of others. So I think I speak for many when I mention that you've set an example for so many others to strive for, to follow in some small way, even if their ethnic or religious background might be different from yours. I'm sure you hear this all the time, but I just want to start off by thanking you for all you do and for choosing to spend this time with us. Thank you. Your humility and your dedication inspire me, and I feel very reinforced. And I think also these programs help people in Burma feel they're not alone. So thank you. Hmm. Hmm. So normally I would like to have an entire episode simply on how you got where you are, as this would fill more than enough time as well as interest. But as we know, these are not normal times. Still, I think some listeners might not have heard about you before and are asking me right now, why all these high words for this David Eubank guy? There's a great documentary out about your life on Amazon Prime that I definitely recommend that listeners should check out. But in the meantime, before we get to current events, can you give us a brief summary of how you got where you are? Yes, thanks. And the, the documentary is Free Burma Rangers. And I also wrote a book called Do This for Love, Free Burma Rangers in the Battle of Mosul, which is focused much on Mosul and the fight against ISIS. But the first quarter of the book is on Burma. And it also explains how we got involved. And we got involved. I grew up in Thailand. I went there when I was nine months old, taken by my parents, who are Christians, and they're still there. They are teachers and evangelists and well diggers and friends of the Thais. My dad's 91. My mom's 89. Mm. And they love the people in Thailand. The people love them. My mom sang with the king of Thailand, the past mm. king, because she was on Broadway before. And so I grew up in Thailand and knew the situation in Burma, which was a bit different then than it is now, but we knew about it. Mm -hmm. And I hunted with the Karen and with the Lahu. These are tribes in Burma and in Thailand. So I grew up knowing a little bit. But then after high school, I went to university in Texas A&M, was commissioned as an army, U.S. Army officer in the infantry. And then I was in the Rangers and then I was in special forces. And while I was in special forces, I went back to Thailand training Thai special forces. But again, Burma became more and more prominent. I get left the army in 1992. And that was during a major transition in Burma where the Slork State Law and Order Council took over just another series of dictatorships. Mm-hmm. And Suu Kyi was put in house arrest and Burma went into chaos and even more war. I mean, right now we're looking at 72 years of civil war. The war started in 1949 has not stopped. Mm-hmm. But, but in the early 90s, I left the military, went to seminary. While I was there, a tribe in Burma called the Wa 
They're in northern Burma, in northern Shan State. The Wa tribe had a foreign minister. Now, the Wa are, were headhunters, almost all of them, and animists, spirit worshipers, which is why they took heads. But there were a few Christians, and one of them was an educated man named Usalu. In fact, he just passed away of COVID last week, mm. and he was in his late 70s. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in 1993, he invited me through my parents because he trekked two months walking from northern Shan State to Thailand through Burma asking for help. One little aside about the Wat. They produced most of the opium in Burma. And they also are one of the leading producers of methamphetamines. But they came to Thailand saying, let's meet the U.S. government and the United Nations. And if we can get help, we will stop all narcotics production. But we need crop substitution help. And we need someone to keep the Burma army off our backs. Because Mm -hmm. if we just stop our drugs, our drugs are like your nuclear weapons. They're they're Mm -hmm. the final thing. We don't even allow drugs to be used in Waste, which is true. Mm-hmm. We use it to sell and buy weapons to keep the Burma army off our backs. Mm-hmm. Well, no progress was made with the U.S. or the United Nations, but this delegation led by Usalu, this WA leader, did meet my parents, and they introduced him to me, and he said, come and help us. We are a warrior people, and you're a warrior but you believe in God and you can't make anybody believe anything, but come in love and, and tell, and come as someone from God. So, okay. My wife and I were married on the beach in Malibu in June, 1993. And we went into Burma extra legally, you know, by hook and by crook and by walking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not by our own cleverness, but in the hands of the local law people. Mm. And that was the beginning. And then in 1996, I had an opportunity to legally go to Burma and I met Aung San Suu Kyi, and at her house, she couldn't leave the house, but she could have visitors at that point, which changed later. And in meeting her, she said, we need unity. Can you help with unity? And we need people to pray for us. So we started the day of prayer for Burma. We got involved with different ethnic groups back on the Thai side and working for political unity between the ethnics and each other, as well as the ethnics and the Burman majority. That was 1996. 1997, the Burma Army launched a major offensive on, in eastern Burma. They displaced over 500,000 people that year in Karen, Kareni, and Shan states. And we were in the middle of that. We had There was no such thing as free Burma Rangers. I didn't have a team. I had nothing, my wife and I. And I remember thinking, praying, and go, God, what can I do? And I thought, well, I'll help one person, and they'll be glad, and I'll be glad. I have no other plan, but I can't just watch this. So I went to the Burma border with four backpacks of medicine and thought, I'll just help people. And right away, when I stepped out of my truck, I was met by a Karen ethnic medic. And he was leading about 10,000 people who'd fled from Burma to Thailand, into Thailand. He was the only medic there. Hmm. And he said, my name is Ilya. I'm a medic. Can I help you? And he had this big ruby earring, big right earring. He had his mouth red, full of betel nut. He's laughing all the time. He had a hand grenade on his harness on his chest and M16 in his hand. He looked like a pirate, but like a pirate angel. Mm. And I said, I found out later he was the champion kickboxer in Burma Mm. as well as being a phenomenal medic. And I said, yeah, I'll help. And so then he turned to people who were fleeing. There's 10,000 people coming down the road, Mm. um, crossing the border in what's called Duplia district into Umpang area. And they're going down this little dirt road. And he said, men, you can run tomorrow, but today's 
today to help you people. And so four men came over, picked up backpacks, their wives and kids kept going deeper in Thailand and we walked into Burma. Mm. And that was really the beginning, although we didn't know it yet, of the three Burma Rangers. And we treated, Ilya basically treated over 1,100 people that week. Mm. And I held the IV bags and supported them. And later, step by step, people began to join us from Karen, from the Kareni, later the Shan, then Kachin, Mon, Chen, Arakan, Lahu, Pao, Ta'ang, many, many ethnic groups. And we then thought, well, we have teams and ethnic leaders asked us to train them. And so we trained what we call holistic relief teams, meaning they go into the front line or the fighting areas to give help. That's medical help. That's um, other humanitarian help, such as clothes, tarps, mosquito nets, blankets, food, uh, shoes, whatever people need. That's help. Hope, reminding people they're not forgotten. And love, reminding them God loves them and we love them and we'll stand with them. And also getting the news out, meaning that we document what's happening by writing down interviews, taking photos and videos and getting the news out, putting a light on the situation. So I boiled it down. It would be this, help the people and get the news out. That's what we tell all the new Rangers once they graduate. If you forget everything, help the people and get the news out. So that's, that's how we started in 93. And now in 2021, we have over 100 relief teams from 13 ethnic groups in Burma. We also, because of ISIS attacks in the Middle East, we were invited by people who knew what we did in Burma. They said, hey, you don't have any safety rules. Come over here. There's no non-governmental organizations on the real front lines. Come and help. So in 2015, we took some of our Burman medics who are excellent and went from Southeast Asia to the Middle East, which was, to me, a miracle from God that we could do it. Mm-hmm. And we started working in Syria, Iraq, and later on in Kurdistan. So now we have an Iraqi and Kurdish team in northern Iraq and a Syrian team in Syria, one each, and we have 100 teams in Burma. So we go in between those teams, training them, encouraging them, giving them support. And someone just asked me, hey, Dave, where are you? You're in America. How can you be in America? I said, my teams do not depend on me. They depend on God and each other. My job is to encourage them, pray for them, and send them money. And then I love walking with them. I do that. I spent eight months, most of the last eight months in Burma, walking from place to place. I love it. And I I can do some things, but they don't wait for me. They do their own great job better than I could. So we have very good teams in Burma, which is our main area, but also in Iraq and Syria. And that leads us up to right now. We've got a volunteer staff of about 30 to 40 unpaid volunteers who from all over the world to come and support those teams in Burma and the Middle East. Right. And there's this great scene in the Amazon Prime documentary where one of your Burman medics is in, I think, Iraq. And he uh, that he's meeting uh, some of the, the, the fellow medics or soldiers that you're working with. And the, there's this kind of some side chatter that the camera catches of the Iraqi saying, well, you know, where are you from? And the guy says, Burma. And the Iraqi kind of looks at him and he's like, Burma? Like, you know, really? And he says something to him like, you know, but from what I know of Burma, like you guys have a lot of problems. There's a lot going on. How are you over here helping us? And there's a, this this uh, great exchange of just being dumbfounded that 
um, these these other people from a war torn country, at least as far as he knows the headlines, have somehow coordinated and managed to leave their own situation in crisis and come and help with another. And uh, it's just a, just this beautiful exchange. Yes, I love that as well. <laughs> and then the one thing where Ilya the medic says, "You eat bread, we eat rice." Ha 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 ha. And right. yeah, it, it's one of the greatest gifts of going to the Middle East was loving the Iraqi people. We all, I fell in love with them. So did the, our teams from Burma, just wonderful people. So, and the same in Syria. But again, we, we work in both those places, but our main efforts, Burma. Mm, what a mix of people and cultures that are meeting and connecting. And uh, and then through all of this, you your family has been with you all the way, a wife and three kids. So what was it like for you to make the decision to bring your family and your kids at different ages and different needs through you, with you, on all these adventures? Well, when we first got involved, Karen and I didn't have kids, and we just went. And Karen is very fit and a brave lady, although, you know, she is so sweet, mm. and soft and kind. You wouldn't think she could do anything. She's small, <laughs> like five foot two mm. and 95 pounds. And she can carry a huge load. She's like an ant. Mm. And um, she doesn't like guns and things that go bang, but she, she'll, and she will flinch, but she will not run away. Mm. She said, Those are my kids there. Those kids in Burma are like my kids. So mm. later on when we had kids, they, the people and the ethnic people already knew us because we've been trekking around with them for a while. And when we had kid, when, when Karen was pregnant with Sahaley, our firstborn, the ethnic people said, oh, when the baby's born, please bring her to us. It's like our daughter. It's like mm -hmm. our granddaughter. So when our daughter was born, we thought, well, we, we can't set up, tell these people, no, it's not safe enough for our kid, but it's safe mm -hmm. for you. That would be crazy. Mm -hmm. Second, we really love them. We want to show them our daughter. Third, we like to be with our kids. We don't want to be separate. What would we do with them? Mm -hmm. And we'd have to quit or we'd have to stick them somewhere else. And then third, as we went, we thought, this is the coolest life I could mm -hmm. imagine for them. And, um, you know, running around in the jungle, they're carried on our backs at first. They have hundreds of aunts and uncles from different ethnic groups that love and care for them and, and we would die for them. To learn how to ride horses from an early age, use a machete, make a shelter, make a fire, hunt and fish like a native. So that's a great gift. And at the same time, we even before Sahaley was born, and we have three kids, Sahaley, Suzanne, and Peter now, we thought, what if one of our kids dies? Could we live with each other? Could we live with ourselves? Mm -hmm. What would happen to us? We'd, we'd fall apart. So it's not a, it's not a light thing. Yeah. And I remember we were talking about that, and my wife Karen said, Dave, we should not live by all the what-ifs that could happen, the bad things that might happen. And they could but live by the opportunities God gives you. And here's an opportunity to raise our kids in a wild place to learn from the native people there how to live and love each other. You know, there's no locks on the doors in most of Karen State where we go because mm. there are no doors. I was just going to say that, right? There's a lot, I know those village homes, there's a lot, not, not, not a lot of doors to begin with. No, not up in the mountains. So people yeah. don't generally do not steal from each other. You're not perfect mm. humans, mm. but they're, the graciousness and the love they exhibit and the skill and woodsmanship that they have. It's just great for our kids. And my kids love it. You ask them where's home, they'll say Burma. Mm. And they grew up riding horses and climbing in the trees and doing all kinds of things and learning how to not just survive, but thrive in the jungle. And most of all, to love people 
of other groups. In fact, when they came back to the States one year, we watched one of the Rocky movies, mm-hmm. the boxing movies, mm-hmm. and there was Rocky or somebody fighting a black guy. And my kids all voted for the black guy. Mm-hmm. We're white. But my kids, all of them voted for the, hey, the black guy should win. Mm-hmm. Why? Because all their aunts and uncles have been brown or black or something. Mm-hmm. And so they really identified. And my kids are white Caucasians. But they've learned you can't judge someone by the color of their skin or their bank account. I mean, right now we're in Cody, Wyoming. We just came back to the States. We're on our second week. Mm-hmm. And my kids are really good riders. They play, my two girls just started Texas A&M and they play polo there just because they're really good. And my son rides steers, bulls, ropes. He does all kinds. He's 15. So Sahaley, the oldest, is 20. Suzanne just turned 19 two nights ago here Hmm. and did a great barrel racing run and Pete's 15. But we got here. We have to borrow horses. We have seven horses in Thailand. We've got 15 horses in Burma we use. But we don't have horses in America because we don't live here. Hmm. And so we come here. We're totally at the mercy of the locals. And my kids have found out the people that have given them horses are not the rich people with lots mm. of horses. Mm, They're right. poor people. Some of them live in trailer homes mm-hmm. and they have fine horses because that's their passion. Mm-hmm. And then they lend them. I remember asking this one, one actually he's a Mexican from Mexico. I don't even know if he has a right ID card. He's here in America working hard and rodeoing. And I said, do you let my kids borrow your money horse? And he goes, it's not my horse. It's God's horse. And I share it. And I, that my kids learned that too, right here in Cody, Wyoming, that you can't judge someone by, by anything but their actions. And so that's, that's a blessing. So yes, it is hard and sometimes scary with our kids, but when the battle of Mosul happened and ISIS was taking over parts of Iraq and Syria, we were invited to go, we went with our family. Mm-hmm. Now my wife and kids were not, you know, kicking open doors and running with me with the Iraqi army into the literally into the face of ISIS, mm-hmm. but they were back. We have a kind of idea of if there's a family there, our family can be there. If there's no families and just a bunch of men fighting, then my family is not right. needed. Right. Nothing they can do but get killed. So my family would be back with the displaced people who just fled the city. They may be back 500 yards or a mile at a casualty collection point, helping administer first aid. Both my daughters are, are pretty practical nurses now, not with training, just by action for mm-hmm. the last you know, since they've been teenagers, they've been mm-hmm. treating wounds, learning how to suture, getting IVs. They're, they're pretty competent. Mm-hmm. In fact, right now at a and they're studying pre-veterinary medicine and nursing. So, but they work at that. My mom and my wife, you know, just comforts people. And then they also coordinate the food and water deliveries with our support team. So they'll be in the back. Some of our, our men and women who are on the support side with my family will be back behind the front line. I'll be in the front line with our top medics. And... The not only then I get to see them every now and then, but again, they learn something else new and they can contribute. And I remember, you know, I just go through the Iraqis. The Iraqis are like, you brought your family? You must think Americans are the same value as Iraqis in God's eyes. You brought your family to be with our families? Hmm. We don't feel like trash anymore. We feel like mm-hmm. we must count. And then one man's, one Kurdish leader said, you brought your son, your most precious thing. I give you my most precious thing, my country. And in Sudan, we've worked in Sudan before. We were bombed every day there with a, in the Nuba Mountains. And the leader of the Nuban said, you brought your family. That means you don't want anything from us. Mm, There's no right, angle because right. you're all in there. So yeah. that's not why we take them, but mm-hmm. that's been a uh, surprising blessing. Mm-hmm. Also. 
to mm-hmm. really, you know, then people aren't very afraid of us. They're like, well, you got your family. You can't be that crazy. And, 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 cause, and they never, you know, people have criticized, oh, why do you take your family? Never have the locals done that. It's only mm-hmm. been foreigners who aren't there. We're privileged. <laughs> but the local, yeah. It's kind of like if your house was burning down, your home mm-hmm. neighborhood was burning down, mm-hmm. and a family pulled up in a truck and started helping, you wouldn't say, send your kids back. You'd say, mm-hmm. thank God everybody's here, man. Right. So yeah. that, that's how it's been. But yeah, and, every mission is different, and we pray about every day. We don't fire and forget. We don't say, well, I worked yesterday. We'll do it today. We look at every day. We pray. Where should the family be? And what languages have your kids grown up to learn? Well, we don't must not have many British genes because the Brits seem to learn like 10 languages. <laughs> we look at all their explorers. Yeah. <laughs> We're still real Americans. So yeah. we don't know that many. But my kids grow up speaking, well, English. And then they, they speak Thai uh-huh. and they speak Karen. That's the main three. Uh-huh. Uh, and they speak a little bit of Burmese, not much. And they know some phrases in Kurdish and Arabic. And I'm, I'm kind of the same. I can, I can get around and uh, Thai is my first language because I grew up there. Thai, then English, and then Karen. We, we can speak pretty well because we've spent a lot of time with those people. Those three. And then we know a smattering of get around Arabic, Kurdish, and Wa. Wa is, a, wa is the first group we met, so we actually learned their language first. Hmm. Yeah, that was the next question I wanted to ask. So you spent time with a number of these ethnic groups, and many of them are really not so properly understood or reported on. So I just want to take a moment to learn a bit about your experiences with them. And again, this is the kind of thing that could be an entire episode, just talking about one after the other after the other and learning more about who they are and what your experiences with them. But I'm wondering if you can just pick a couple of groups that you spent more time with and for listeners who might not really have ever heard anything about them, share a bit about their culture, their community, just something you've learned and come to appreciate, something, uh, some unique quality that you've, you've forever taken with you after spending time with this group or that group. Thanks. You, you're a great interviewer. <laughs> you got a great voice, too. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Well, I think I'll start with the Karen because we spent a lot of time with them. I think if you chose one word with a Karen, it'd be harmony. Mm. And so that means if they have disagreements, they try to find compromises that don't compromise the virtues. They may compromise some values, but they don't compromise the principles, you know, principles and virtues being integrity, love, courage, um, equality. But values are like safety, education, comfort, um, modes of movement, you know, because we value some over others, but they are always striving for harmony. So for the Karen, I think it's harmony and consensus in what they do would be the, some of the salient marks of the Karen and then laughing and smiling all the time. Mm. I remember one time I was with a French, he was an ex foreign legion fighter and he'd helped the Karen as a volunteer fighter and then later started his own business. And he said, the Karen laugh at everything. Mm. Even when there's a tragedy, they laugh, which is true. And he said, and then later on, his, his um, restaurant burned down in Nassau, Thailand. And he said, you know what's going to happen when the Karen come today and see my burned down restaurant? They'll say a couple of nice words and then they're going to start laughing. <laughs> and so sure enough, like an hour later, one of the top Karen leaders, Tutu Lei, shows up. I'm very sorry about your restaurant burning down. <laughs> <laughs> and the French guy was so mad. He goes, that's my restaurant. What if I said, what if I said your mother died? Your mother died. And Tutule goes, what? He goes, your mother died. He goes, ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> And so they laugh at almost everything. They also cry, you know, at losses. But they're, 
always finding, like, I remember once a treat, we were with some IDPs, they were chased by the Burma Army, barely survived just for what they could carry. I was helping carry some of the kids on my shoulders with and their, their baskets, and we're fleeing through the jungle, we get to this big river, and it has a sandbar in the middle, and we cross the, the one, one branch of the river into the sandbar, cross the other. I set up a little, like, lean-to in the middle of the sandbar with our team, and then the the villagers went into the tree line on both sides. Well, a storm came up, huge one, and trees started to fall. And one pastor, his name was Bayal Mano, which means victory over the Burmese. Interesting name. <laughs> he was given that as a kid. Wow. Uh, and he's a funny guy. And he put all his possessions, which and his family's possessions, which were about four baskets of food, plates, dishes, machete flintlock musket for hunting, piece of plastic, blanket, rice, salt, odds and ends, fishing net, all, all of his survival stuff was in a few baskets. And he put them next to a big tree. And then all of a sudden that tree snapped. It's like 100 feet tall and it fell. Hmm. And the family jumped out of the way, but they're, all their goods were crushed. And this, this tree is like a redwood. I mean, it was probably diameter 10 feet, 20 feet, on huge. And... And he looked and everybody looked and that's like insult to injury. You know, you just fled, you're soaking wet. You only have these possessions. Now they're buried under this tree. Instead of complaining like God hates me or there is no God or it's not right. He just looked around, laughed and he goes, look, God gave me firewood. And that's a very Karen. I was at a house once and the, and one of my kids broke a dish. They go, oh, look, now we have two dishes. So they keep choosing um, to laugh. Mm. I think that's a friend, harmony and humor. Mm. Uh, the Kachin, more stern, but very brave, very mm. aggressive. And you can look right now at what's happening in Burma. They are the taking it to the Burma army. So the Kachin are very fearsome, very brave, but also very hospitable, hospitable and very straight shooters. The Wa, they're big fighters too. They're big. Like one guy said, you know the Wa, we don't know how to cook. We don't know how to make anything, but we can <laughs> fight and we're really good at dying. <laughs> oh boy. And pretty pretty courageous and also straight shooting. Mm-hmm. The Sean, the Sean are like the Thai. Gentle, trying to find compromise, non-confrontation, trying to smooth the way through, trying to see both sides, and also quick to laugh and very welcoming and also very productive. Mostly they live down in the plains. Those are those are some of the groups. The Chen mostly are Christian, 90-something percent. Mm-hmm. And love to sing. And the Arakan, the Arakan, to me, they're quick-witted and they, they're they happy to argue any topic to any degree <laughs> and they're quite smart and they also know how to move and they need to move. So those are, you know, the Aka, one of the poorest tribes, but also very generous and smiling people. The Lahu, probably the best hunters in Burma, the least mm. to it. But the Lahu, very good hunters. They're like a bunch of Davy Crockett's. Mm. So, Living amongst these people and growing up, the Karani are like the Karen, but growing up amongst them, it's just a blessing, a, a diverse group of people. And in the end, we're all really the same deep down, but the cultures are different and mm-hmm. the propensities are different, but we enjoy being with all of them. As someone who's a bit of a foodie and always somewhat interested in what kind of strange and interesting and creative things you can find when it comes to food in different cultures, tell us a bit about some of the more unique and tasty or even not tasty uh, food concoctions you've been able to have as you've traveled through these tribes. Well, you know, just like in America, 
the mountain people have less to choose from in terms of food, but you can get some really good barbecue um, down and some other good game meat, for example. The and same in Burma. The, mo, the most um, varied and complex dining you're going to have is with the Burmans in the plains or the Shan in the plains because they have long traditions and access to all kinds of foods and, and vegetables. So you get the most complex foods there. And to me, overall, the most tasty. That's complete opinion. But um, up in the mountains, everybody cooks good in the end. Everybody has something they make special. Mm. And I, I love the Karen rice, the Highland rice. Mm. And I love how they cook wild game. Mm-hmm. And they have a, a, a stew called uh, takaba, which is a great kind of a thick rice porridge with meat and spices in it. The Shan cook like the Thais. I think the Thais cook great. So I love all their food. The Kachen have a lot of Chinese influence, and that's excellent. Uh, the the Arakan have a lot of Burmese and, and Indian influence, and they have the same kind of spices. It's all good. The Mon the same. All good food. I think the the Burmese food's a little heavier, sometimes a little sweeter than Thai food, but quite excellent. And of the strange foods, of course, there is the whole gamut of larvae and worms that are usually stir-fried and insects of every kind imaginable stir-fried, not stink bugs because they, they probably poison you. They certainly taste terrible. Mm. But crickets are great. Stir-fried cricket is like eating a French fry or a peanut. Mm. Kind of and rich. And those are all good and very palatable. And the insides of animals, most Americans don't eat a lot of insides. Mm-hmm. I think our ancestors did, but it, we've kind of gone away from it. They're not my favorite, but most ethnic groups eat the entire animal, every right. piece of it, which right. is not my favorite. Probably the food I like least are intestines with the original um, occupants still in there. Mm-hmm. And oh boy, it smells like it tastes, which is bad to me. Some people <laughs> right. love it. Right. And they eat, you know, the Karen and Akka and Lahu will also eat dog. And mm. then they'll say this, D-O-G good. <laughs> and there's, I've had some excellent dog sausage. I mean, I love dogs. I could never eat my own dog, but I've had some excellent dog sausage. And I think the worst thing I've ever tried, and it was by accident, but there's a type of monkey that the Kren like to eat, but not just the monkey. They like to eat its excrement boiled because it eats a certain kind of leaf. Uh. And so the only thing I could compare it to is something like the most strong cheese you can imagine. (laughs) Right. And, and they would, and we would say, that's the grossest thing ever. You're eating monkey poo. And they'd say, are you kidding me? You take, the dribblings out of a cow's udder and let it rot. And you call that good. Right. Right. You know, I think most people don't like the strongest cheeses and most people, most Korean may not like monkey poo, but those two things are delicacies Mm. on the culture you came from. Mm. I like really neither. I can go with the cheese first, (laughs) but um, anyway, those are, those are some of the things you can eat there. That's great. Thank you so much for that. Um, It's going to be hard, but I want to move to a bit more serious topics after that. Um, Before we get into some of the the more current events, and we've learned uh, some great things about your background, so much of what you do in your humanitarian activities, your sacrifice, 
everything springs from your Christian faith. And so I'm wondering if you could share a bit about how your sense of faith in the religion and Christianity or uh, identity as a Christian, how that goes into what you do and why you do it. Thank you for asking that. That's the heart of why I do it is my belief that there is a creator God that made all people and gives us all freedom. And God has a way for us to live. That's good, but we don't have to choose it. And I believe you're either part of building and being part of God's kingdom of good, or you're part of a kingdom of evil and there's no middle ground. And I'm not the judge necessarily where those lines are, who's doing what, but I don't think there's middle ground. I think you're either doing something for love and goodness, or it's the other thing. Now, maybe a weak enough other thing that it looks like middle ground. But I, 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 there's a lady named Amy Carmichael. She was a, a British missionary in the 30s. And of the many good things she did in India, she helped stop the temple prostitution and the sacrifice, the sacrifice of girls and the, and the seti practice of, of burning widows alive. Mm. She's one of the main people to stop that mm. by her love and presence and, and diplomacy and doggedness. But she said this, while we're counting the cost, Satan is busy buying up the territory. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like when you look at the dictators in Burma, they're not kidding. Mm-hmm. They have put their lives, fortune, and sacred honor on the table, and they're all in, full mm-hmm. on. And we're all like, uh, uh, do I want to, oh my gosh, I'll get killed if I do that. Or, oh, I'll lose, you know. They're all in. Mm-hmm. So if you think you're going to take on evil halfway, you're going to lose. I mean, the, the founding fathers of the America both the founding fathers and founding mothers, because they did it together. They, they said this, unto this cause, we, put, we dedicate our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. That's a lot. That's all, you, that's all a human has. My life, my money, and my reputation. I'm putting it all on the line. And they were fighting England, a real country. Mm-hmm. And they were called traitors, and they were probably going to lose. And it was a lot of faith. So I, I feel that... God gives us all a choice to work for, for love or, or work for hate or kind of trying to chicken out and be in the middle. But if you chicken out and say, well, I don't want to do either. I mean, I'd rather love, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to take on the Burma army or I don't want to stand against them in some way. I'll just kind of sit here quietly. Hmm. You're going to be swept away by the forces of evil. Hmm. And anyway, it's, it's that, I think Edmund Burke, you know, evil prevails when good men do nothing. Right. So, so to me, I'm not good. So how can I do this work? And I mean, I do some good things. I think some good things, but I also think some bad things. I do some bad things or some uh, or I'm muddled in the middle. So my experience was I asked God, I asked God, are you real? Jesus, are you real? And my understanding is God made this world, gave us total freedom and we could do whatever we want. And we began to screw it up pretty fast with our freedom. And God sent his son, Jesus, to say, if you want to know what God looks like, look at, look at this. Look at him. That's me in, in flesh. And Jesus said, I came to that all would be saved, not to condemn, but that, that but people be convicted of their sin and all would be saved. And so I believe God is a God of love. And I felt that love. And when I asked Jesus, are you real? I felt something happen in my heart, in, in my soul. And so I, for me, Jesus forgives me of my sins shows me my sins and helps me move on 
where I don't have to make merit or be good enough. I can just say, I'm sorry to God and whoever I punish. And then there's consequences. You know, maybe you, you'll be punished by people too, but at least I'm free. And then he leads me. We all, I believe, have a role in life and we all have equally important roles and they're different. And our role has been to stand with the oppressed in Burma and wherever else invited to Sudan, Iraq, and Syria and remind them that God loves them. And also that the, that the, the evil on this world is not in the end, our biggest enemy is not people. This is now, this is just a faith statement. I can't prove it, mm-hmm. but there are invisible powers that want to do us harm. And I would call them Satan and the demons. And we can't necessarily fight them. They're spiritual, but God can fight them if we ask him to. And so I, I like what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. He said, the line of good and evil is not between nations, groups, or peoples or races. It's in the human heart. That means every day I've got to look at my own heart and say, God, help me, forgive me this. And usually I come up with very tangible things. Like I was rude to my wife. Mm-hmm. I, I told the truth, but I told it in a way that people believe I'm better than I am. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, it's wrong. He brings it to my mind. I can say, I'm sorry for it. And, and that's that line of good and evil is important to remember. It's not just, I'm the good guy. We're the good guys. And for example, Burmari is all bad. Right. And the other thing Solzhenitsyn said, I like, he said, in, in the worst person, there's a shred of good always left and the possibility for more good. And in the best person, there's a present shred of evil and the possibility for more. So we don't worship people. We try to love and forgive people and call each other there's something higher. And to me, that something higher is God. And people can call it love or anything else they want. But for me, God is, continually changes my heart for the better. So I serve him and I feel that God has led us to this, um, this work in Burma. And, and it's a mission too, a mission to, to, for freedom, for justice, and for reconciliation. Mm, yeah, so moving on to Burma and where we are now, you've been in the country for a long time. You've personally been on the front lines of terrible ongoing war between ethnic groups and the Tamada. How are you feeling now at the moment that we find ourselves in? I think it's the worst I've seen since 1997, which was a major offensive. And in a way, it's worse than 97 offensive because 97 offensive was relatively localized to the east. This is all over Burma. And the people have risen up. There's about 1,000 who've been killed in the streets, men, women, and children. There's over 200,000 displaced ethnic people. And the only thing that slowed down the Burma army in the last couple of months has been the heavy monsoon rains the strength of the resistance holding on. And I think people rising up in different ways all over Burma have really kept the Burma military overextended. But I think it's the worst situation because you have all these displaced and killing and I don't see an end in sight. There's no backing down by the Burma military. And the international community has not taken much concrete action to help people under attack. So I feel right now it's the worst. Having said that, I'm really grateful and proud of our teams. We've got these 100 plus teams. They're nonstop working. I, I think you're on our reporting thread. Um, I, I can't even sell all the reports in time. There's photos, they're doing kids programs, people hiding in the jungle, they're handing out tarps and food. We've been able to keep up with food and right and medicine distribution, even through all this displacement. And we're not alone. There's other groups like the Karen, Department of Health and Welfare, the Committee for Indirectly Displaced Karen People, the Shan Department of Health and Welfare, the Kachin Relief Organizations, WPN, the Kachin, Great Kachin Group. 
and working in partnership with those groups, we've been really able to help a lot of people. And it's, I think I said earlier, one, one person was questioning me, hey, why aren't you there? I need to see you. You know, I, I said, it doesn't depend on me. Our mm-hmm. teams function really well without me. And they do most things better than I can. I love to be there, but my main job is to pray for them, support them, and speak for them. So I see the situations worse than, than I've almost ever seen it. Mm-hmm. But I see hope because our teams are doing a great job. The people that they're helping haven't given up. And the people in the cities, they have not given up. I don't think they're going to give up. Mm -hmm. Mm. You've referenced before how amazing it's been to hear young Bamar, especially from Generation Z, coming forward and apologizing for the ways that ethnics have been treated and pledging to do better. For yourself, what has it been like to hear that? And how have you seen it received from the ethnic people? And have have you ever heard anything like this before in all your years there? I have not heard this before ever. And there's a unity now that I've never seen in Burma, nor have I ever heard of there being. And we've been over 25 years involved in Burma. And in in my reading before that, I didn't see it. And so ethnic Burmans will come to our camp and say, thank you for saving us. You know, we didn't even try to save the Karen people and they save us. (laughs) We don't deserve their help, but we're really grateful. And now we will stand for a federal democracy, meaning the ethnics must have their rights. And it's federal democracy first, not a democracy that's federal. And so the federal part, the, the elements of self-determination, those are crucial. And this is what many Burmans are pushing for and willing to even fight for. And they said things like, we had no idea how bad it was mm-hmm. until our own police arrested us and killed our parents mm-hmm. and grabbed our uncles and put them in jail and tortured them. And then we thought, this is what's been happening to the ethnics all along. And we didn't lift a finger. We were so ashamed. So please give us a second chance. And the ethnics have. It's been really amazing to watch the ethnics go, you know, we cannot be petty. We cannot let bitterness, even though we don't trust these people and they have never helped us. And they're probably only helping us because they're in trouble. We have to for the sake of our own hearts and also for any hope of any future, we need them and they need us. So we've Mm. got to accept their apologies and find ways to work together. Mm, That's amazing. As this coup has played out, many of these Bamar activists have been struggling with this question of violence or nonviolence. In the beginning, the first few months, we saw overwhelming nonviolence, but then of course the military began shooting people in the street. And uh, that being said, of course, there's been armed strife going on for many years. 72 years was the number you just gave in the ethnic areas where it's initiated by the Tamada. So this is nothing new for these groups that you're spending time with. Looking overall at this moment that we're in, what's your opinion on what would be more effective at this moment strategically for the people to win? And I should follow up this question by saying, I understand this is not black and white. I think it's a false binary for people to look at the situation by saying you need to hold to Gandhian ideals or you need to have a full um, civil war or with you know everyone armed and fighting and IEDs everywhere, um, obviously there's there's something in between this. But looking at this question of of um, of a nonviolent approach and the various ways of armed aggression, where do you stand at what's necessary at this moment? Well, for me, being someone that believes that God answers prayer, my first response is pray. God, what what do I do? How do I handle this? Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a bullet never changes the human heart ever. 
You never reconcile with someone by shooting them. You don't change their minds by shooting them. You sometimes have to to stop them because they won't stop, like ISIS or sometimes Burma Army. So the ideal is not to hurt anyone, but to find a way, find common ground, forgive each other, compromise, negotiate. Sometimes, though, that doesn't work because people on the other side will not have it. ISIS would not do that. The Imperial Japanese Army was not about to compromise. Neither were the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, you brought Gandhi. Well, Gandhi was a very different situation. He's with the British. The British have a whole different code of conduct, and it wasn't even their country. Mm-hmm. I, I, it can work there, but it, does, it wouldn't work in North Korea. It wouldn't work in China. It wouldn't work in anywhere there's a totalitarian dictatorship. I've never seen it work where there's totalitarian dictatorship. I've only seen these movements right. where there's some kind of Judeo-Christian ethos with some kind of democracy behind it, um, you know, with opposing parties and different ideas. So that's so in terms of what do you do when you're in Burma? I think it's prayer. And like you, you pointed out, it's not black and white. Maybe sometimes you fight, maybe sometimes you don't. But for me, I, I think our approach to the Burma military is, is two-handed. One hand says, let us forgive each other and find a way and be friends. We don't hate you. We will not hate you no matter what you do to us. We, won't, we don't want to be bound by that. We love you. And let's and we love you enough to say this doesn't work and we will not let it work because this is the wrong way to govern. We so it's not just we're opposing you because we want to save our lives and freedoms, because it's not good for you either. So on one hand, we'll let's talk and be friends. On the other hand, if you will not talk and you will come to my house and arrest my wife or beat my door down, I'm gonna fight. And if that means you die or I die, it'll that's better than letting you do this evil. So I think it's a two ways. And so sometimes you'll be able to talk. Sometimes you'll be able to negotiate. Other times you'll have to fight. But I think the people on the ground have to make those decisions. We can't make it for them. Even when I'm on the ground there, I just pray day by day, what do I do? And normally I, I, I don't fight, not because I don't believe it's effective, but because we don't have, the, we don't have the, um, the role to do that. And we don't have the, the support to do it. So... The people who are fighting in Burma are mostly the ethnic armed groups that have some weapons and ammunition systems. But then there's many of these uh, public defense groups that have come up very poorly armed, but very motivated that this will not stand. The oppression will not be allowed to go unchecked. We die, we die. We don't want to die, but we will not let this go on for the good of our family and friends and people, but also for the good of even our own army. It's not good to let them run rampant like this. So to me, it's a case-by-case, prayer-by-prayer decision. Mm, Right. So you talked about some of the rise of these PDF, the People's Defense Forces, that are getting some training, trying to get some access to uh, either to, to get weapons or to make their own. And as someone like yourself from a military background, I'm wondering what your view on this is. On one hand, it's been... Uh, these groups have been seen as possibly critical to being able to form the resistance up and down the country in every community, small and big. A concern that's been launched about some of the work they're doing is that they, uh, for one, that they these are groups that do not have any background or training, and it could actually be more dangerous to have people who don't, who haven't been through um, 
the certified training to be able to know how to you how to do what they're doing, they could actually be of more damage to themselves. And another concern has just been the proliferation of so many groups that are now having access to to some kind of armed resistance. And this is all playing out in front of us. And these groups are actually so diverse and scattered and um, and forming and aligning in different ways that no one really exactly knows what's all out there and what they're all doing. But what are your thoughts about the uh, the process of these groups forming and of them getting training and, and arms? How how do you see this, uh, this development? Well, I think that's up to each individual how they're going to respond. And they know the risk. And that's up to them. I think that, so I support their, their, their basic human right to defend themselves. That's a fundamental right. I think that um, war, when you're fighting a government with a standing, well-organized, well-supplied army, it takes a lot of forethought, training, plans, tactics, strategy, and then practice, going out and practice what you're going to do. You cannot just fight a war on emotion or the idea that you're right alone. That doesn't stop the bullets, and it doesn't make you an organized fighting force. Because when you fight an army, they are organized, and they, they'll keep coming. So I think that it's their right to stand up and fight. I hope that if they do, they pray. Again, not to hate the Burma Army, even as they fight them, because they don't want to become like the Burma Army. To pray to keep their hearts open with love, even if they fight, and also to pray for the right strategies and supporting tactics, and then to practice them. And then to think, what? A, okay, so I'm gonna attack this bridge and, and Burma Army outpost here today. Okay, that'll um, hurt them. And that's a payback rather than kill my friends. And maybe they won't control this bridge and we can slow down their resupply. But then they should be thinking the next step. Oh, well then when they do that, the Burma army will go another way and take mm-hmm. another bridge. So we're going to blow that up at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then when the reinforcements come, we're going to ambush them. And then when those reinforcements come, we're going to ambush them. Well, that all those, like that's four different actions. Those take planning and rehearsing. You can't just say, you, you do this, I do that. Mm-hmm. It, it will be um, confused and disorganized. And so I think having in-depth plans and then practicing them on the ground, rehearsing them, that's crucial. If you're gonna you deploy, mm, you've talked a couple times just now about even as one is resisting the Burma army, that it is being done as much as possible without hate in one's heart, with holding a hand open for forgiveness, uh, as as much as possible, trying to have that nonviolent option. And I want to go a bit deeper into that possibility. So. An important part of the Buddhist faith is letting go of negative feelings of anger and resentment, hatred, etc., with the understanding that these defilements are only burning the person that's holding on to them, no matter what circumstances they're in. And although I'm not Christian myself, I understand that the role of forgiveness is a very important part of the Christian faith. So where I'm going with this is how a person of faith, whether it's Buddhist or Christian or Muslim or something else, responds in the face of pure evil, as we're finding in the case of the Tatmadaw or ISIS. As we might train our minds as practitioners of the faith, when we're actually faced with this abject cruelty and inhumanity, 
it becomes more challenging to really follow these religious edicts and truly detach from our anger, move past hatred for forgiveness. So I'm curious on a personal level or uh, either speaking for yourself or seeing the from the groups that you're in contact with and helping that, that suffer even more because it's their home, uh, how does this Christian faith inform you or how have you seen it inform them as to how to actually respond to these manifestations of evil and how does one strive to follow it? Well, I think first is communication, communication with God by prayer. God, what do I do? What, what's, what's, these are your children too. The enemy is your children too. What do I do? What's the way of love? What's the way of truth? What will make a difference? And so I think the, the first thing is prayer. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing you pointed out, some tenets or some practices of Buddhism where you try to get rid of negative thoughts because they're just going to hurt you. I think that's true. And and so letting go of those, and for me, it's asking God to identify those and let them go. And trusting God will show you and, and will have something for you at the end also. And then I think it's um, asking the question among yourselves, among your group, family, what's the most loving thing I can do? Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I'm not sure what the answer will be, but most of the time that's something conciliatory. That's an olive branch put out. That's a, a, a helping an enemy. You don't want to help. That's a treating a wounded. You didn't want to treat. That's giving, giving assistance to somebody that is your enemy. That's most of the time. And those things break down walls of hatred and open up new relationships. But sometimes the most loving thing to do is fight. I remember in the Battle of Mosul, ISIS came around the corner. I was sitting with a Iraqi officer. They came around the corner and surprised us. They shot him six times, three in the chest, two in the arm, one in the leg, shot another guy, shot me once in the arm. And they were had this look of glee, like just happiness on the face. Mm. One guy was yelling, Allahu Akbar, God is great. And behind me were a bunch more soldiers and they did, thought it was a suicide car plus infantry coming. So they dove out of the way, not knowing it's only three guys with guns, but they were all hiding in the, around in a little carport. And at that moment, I had, had to make a decision. What do I do? And this is happening really fast because they're standing seven yards advancing to four yards. They're walking and shooting right up to me. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting on the ground. And I just remember thinking, I'm dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, God help me. And I brought my rifle up and I wasn't dead. And I shot the first guy and then went to the next guy. And that's actually when I got shot by him, shot me in the arm. My arm came off the weapon. I put it back on. Thought, okay, well, it's not broken. Shot him. And the third guy who'd walked up within four yards of me, which is really close, shooting, kept missing me. And his eyes went wide when I was still alive. My buddy was shot laying there and I was straddling my buddy, shot this guy. And then there was more of them around the corner and they kept coming and I kept shooting and throwing hand grenades by now. And the man who was shot next to me, Lieutenant Hussein, said, Daoud, Daoud, that's my name in Arabic, David. Daoud, don't leave me. Don't leave me, uncle. Don't leave me. And I said, I can't help you unless I stop ISIS because they keep coming. I'm just standing over his body now, throwing grenades and shooting and yelling for help. Finally, I got help. And the people that helped me, one was my Christian video man and medic named Zhao Sang from Kachin State. Mm-hmm. And one who's a devout Christian. He later died in Syria. And the other one was uh, Justin, Justin D. Moranville, who is an atheist and ex-U.S. Army Marine. 
And he helped, he came out in the street and helped me drag Lieutenant Hussein in under fire and, and save his life. Lieutenant mm. still lived, even with all his wounds. And I said, Justin, you don't believe in God, but you know love and God is love. There's no way you would have come on that street with all those bullets except for love. And he goes, yes, I did it for love. I said, well, you know God then. Mm. And so I think there are times, and I thought later, you know, if I didn't have shot those guys, they would have definitely shot me, killed me. They would have killed the guys behind me. They would have killed Justin and Zhao and everybody else hiding around the corner. And then they would have kept killing and killing and killing until they were killed. They made that decision. <laughs> they publicly made that decision. I could see it on their faces. Right. So I think there is a time to fight. I think it's the last time. It's the last thing you, have, you do. I'm asking this question as well because I'm also thinking about another harrowing scene from the documentary that records you in real time learning that these two young Kachin girls whose photographs we see have been brutally raped and killed by the Tatmada and it captures your reaction as you're as you're struggling with this intense anger as you hear the news and admitting at this moment that what you would like to do is go and find the people that did that and and kill them and you I should say you're not saying this as this is what we should do or what I'm going to do it's actually a very raw and vulnerable reflection of this is how I feel this is how I feel right now and it's almost like like the, in that moment, the camera catches you, it's too much to process. And, and all you can say, you, you kind of don't say anything for a little bit. And then all you can say is, this is how I, I'm honestly feeling with, with what's inside me. And so as I think about what you've been witness to and been up against for so long and where we're at now with what we're seeing in front of us, this and going back to the Solzhenitsyn quote that you said of this, uh, this, this battle within each of us of when you're faced with this this absolute evil and horror that um there are these these religious edicts whether whatever the religion is that is 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 calling on us to follow both ethical codes as well as a higher spiritual plane that we're striving for but yet when you're in this moment of seeing two young innocent beautiful kitchen girls that are i think they were teachers in their local community and you find out what they've been subjected to, it's really hard to, I can't imagine how one brings back the focus on those religious and spiritual um, uh, teachings and path that one is striving to follow. Yeah. When I saw that picture, it's not the one you, I mean, the one you see in the movie has been cleaned up and and censored. I saw the uncensored picture of their naked bodies. Mm. It's hard for me to talk about without crying because I have two daughters, uh, 20 and 19 now, and those girls were about the same age. Volunteer teachers going to help people, and they were raped and then beat to death with a big stick. And the stick is there. You can see it covered in blood, big stick, big club. One girl's fingers are all broken. It's up in front of her face where she'd try to shield her head. And I saw that, and I I just wanted to cry. Um I thought, wow, who did this? They have to pay. Even more important than paying, they have to stop. And I remember just showing this picture to our team and saying, how does it make you feel? And I could see their faces. Mm-hmm. And I kill every Burmese soldier. Right. And that's how I felt. I'm going to kill all of them, man. Not because I'm Superman. Not because I'm perfect. This is just wrong. It cannot mm-hmm. stand. Mm-hmm. I can't live with it. So I got on my knees and I just said, God, help me. I hate these guys. I want to kill all of them. 
help me. Help me forgive them. At the same time, stand for what's right and not let other girls like this die. I don't know how to do that. That was my prayer. And it relieved me. I believe that God, through that prayer, relieved me of hatred and bitterness. He did not relieve me of the cause, call for justice. Mm-hmm. You know, throughout the Bible and throughout Christian and other history, humans have been ordered and mandated to act justly, to stand for justice. That's a human endeavor and a human responsibility. You must be able to respond for justice. But revenge belongs to God. Mm. And the only way he, the only way justice works is with love. Revenge, if a human tries it, is just hate-driven. And it'll, right. it'll, like you said earlier about the Buddhist tenets, that'll just hurt you. Yeah. And so, but justice we're called to. And that may cost you your life. It may cause you to take someone else's life. You know, you're fighting the Nazis regarding concentration camps, slaughtering Jews. Some of those guys, you can't talk to them. Yeah. And... You're in in our country, in America, there's some people who are really bent on evil and they will not be stopped except with a bullet. So I think those are the tragic um, realities. But I think if I, when I pray and I ask God to help me, he shows me a way. Most of the time there's a way I don't have to fight, but I have fought. I fought in Burma and I fought multiple times against ISIS in, in the Middle East. And when afterwards over, I would pray for these people, especially if I'd killed them, which I did in, in, in the Middle East, ISIS. I'd pray for them. I'd pray for their families. I just said, God, forgive them. Help us meet in heaven one day, not based on what they did, but based on your love and mercy for them and me. And so I, I had experience of asking Jesus to take away revenge and hatred, and he did in my heart. And I never have hated since that prayer, ISIS. And I, that's my prayer. I don't want to hate ISIS or Burmese military because I don't, I'm not perfect myself and I don't want that hatred to consume me. So I just pray for love. And I think you can fight even with love. Just like if you have kids, you sometimes have to take some stern disciplinary measures. You know, just one example would be when the three-year-old is going to burn their hand on the stove and really burn it, you're going to take physical action. You're going to grab that kid. Now, they may not look that violent because you're so much stronger, mm-hmm. but you are using physical force to stop them from doing what they want to do. So it's mm-hmm. just a matter of scale, but you're doing it because you love them. And so, um, you know, as you go further down that line of thinking, okay, now, but you're not killing them. <laughs> well, you know, with someone like ISIS, or the Burma military, you might have to shoot them to stop them. But you're doing it finally because not because it's good to do, because there's no no, no more loving way to do it. That's what they're asking for, and they're going to keep destroying people until they're stopped. So I believe there's a time to fight and kill, but I think that's a minority time. I think most people, when they can see the evil they're doing, will be sorry if you give them a way out of forgiveness. So that is the thing I pray for, and I found, for me, a supernatural power of Jesus that helps me do it in spite of myself. Mm, and and, sorry, I, go ahead. I get that by asking, I say, Jesus, help me. I'll obey you. Hmm. This might be an impossible question. I don't know if the answer to this would be on a worldly or a spiritual plane, maybe both. You could take it as you will. What do you think it is that makes the Tamada so cruel? Um, but um, I think it's a number of things. I th- I'll start with the spiritual. 
I think there are powers and principalities we can't see in this world. And there's God and there's angels and there's demons and there's devil, the devil. And so I think one is there's a spiritual influence that they may not be aware of that when they don't fill their heart with love or other things, something else will come in to fill that heart. So I think there's the power of the demonic, which in my experience can be defeated in Jesus name. And so there's that, that reason, the kind of the, the, the invisible supernatural. Another reason is pride or racism. You know, racial problems in America, they talk about black and white. Well, it, in Burma, it's brown and brown. Race, racism isn't about color. It's mm-hmm. about, I think my group's better than your group. Mm-hmm. And that's, you can go to Africa where it's black, black, and they hate each other. This tribe hates that tribe. Burma, mm-hmm. you've got brown people fighting brown people. In America, we had something called the Civil War. Whites fought whites. And in Europe, it's full of whites fighting whites. So anyways, I think racism is a part of it. And in this case, it's the Burman tribe thinking they're superior and want to crush the ethnic tribe. So there's racism, pride. I think um, greed. They want what the ethnics have. They want that gold. They want the teak. They want the minerals. They want the beautiful land. So greed is another reason. And then the love of violence and dominating. And so when you have this demonic influence, you have greed, you have uh, pride, you have racism, you have this love of violence and domination. All that together causes you to take things from people, including their lives. When you do that, they often resist and fight back and are very angry. So now you're afraid of them because they're going to kill you because of what you've done to their family. So fear is another motivator. I got to beat these guys where they get me. And, and then a false sense of patriotism. This is, this country belongs to Burma. It must be Burman. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the ethnic groups are. This is our country. And all those, I think, are factors. And then they don't see a way out. And then after some time, they're not just afraid. Let's say you've killed one of their buddies. Now they're genuinely mad at you. And they want to avenge that death. So there's hate, there's revenge, there's fear, there's greed, there's pride. I think those are the factors that contribute. So to take a moment to look at the wider international community, aside from statements of concern and sanctions that we're seeing, there's almost a total lack of engagement that at least I'm seeing from the outside world. And I'm wondering if this has surprised you and what types of involvement you might like to see. Thanks. Yes, it has surprised me because the coup of February the 1st this year was evil, devastating, and very public. Aung San Suu Kyi, a Nobel Prize winner and leader of the democracy movement in Burma, forcefully arrested and most of the leadership of the National League for Democracy and other pro-democracy parties were arrested or had to run for their lives. Some were captured, tortured, and killed. Now we're up to about 1,000 men, women, and children gunned down in the streets, 200,000 displaced. That's on top of over a million displaced on, you know, for the past few years. So that's a, a human tragedy. And looking at the positioning of Burma right between India, Bangladesh, and Thailand, and with China, and going down to the, the Indian Ocean, it's a strategic, important place politically, economically, and most of all, human, human needs and and what's right and wrong. So I've been surprised by the coverage. In the beginning, there was some, and it's waned. 
Now, you know, this week as we talk, Afghanistan is blown up. So I can really understand that. That's just a nightmare, what's happening there. But Burma is still a crucial problem, has not gotten better. And my encouragement is for journalists to go there or go near there and tell the truth in love or look at the many good and vetable reports coming out and pass them on. In terms of what we want people to do, for me, I think the first is prayer. For me, I pray, God, please help us do this the right way. Please help us have freedom and justice and reconciliation in Burma. The second thing is direct humanitarian assistance. That's to the people in the cities and streets, and there's ways to get that there, as well as to the ethnics in the mountains who are under attack. So, so humanitarian assistance. Second is political recognition. We would like the U.S. and other countries and the United Nations to to recognize the national unity government, NUG, not because they're perfect, because no government is, but because they're the best thing we have right now to, to represent the cause of freedom in Burma. And at the same time, to recognize the ethnic armed groups who've been struggling over 72 years of what is the longest civil war in the world. And these are groups, they're, they're variety of ethnic groups and governance systems, but most of them have some form of democracy. The KNU, for example, the Korean National Union, every two years they have local elections, every four years they have the large national elections. So in whatever way they're organized, the ethnic groups represent their constituency pretty well. And so to be recognized as such and have the NUG recognized and then to host meetings between the NUG and the ethnic groups of how to help. This is on top of the direct humanitarian assistance. And then the last thing is intervention. I think when you watch kids, women, men get gunned down on the street, you can't just say, well, we can do nothing. You may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. Whether that's providing assistance to the people resisting the government or some kind of intervention, that's, that's important. So those are the three things we ask for is, or four things, prayer, direct humanitarian assistance, political recognition of the pro-democracy groups, ethnic and Burman, and intervention, indirect or direct. Mm, yeah, thanks for that. That's looking at the picture of what's going on now. And if we were to fast forward and imagine what a new Burma could look like should victory come to the people. So having spent so much time there yourself in the ethnic areas and understanding their needs and concerns, what do you think their vision might be? And I understand these groups are very diverse, so it's not monolithic, but to any degree you can speak for their vision for what kind of post-Tatmadaw country they might like to build and live in. I think in the past, most ethnic groups were fighting for complete independence, their own countries. And now it seems that most ethnic groups are fighting for self-determination within a federal Burma. That's the compromise that most ethnic groups will give. Not all, but, but most. And what they'd like to see, whether it's independence or autonomy within a federal system, is the right to their own language, the right to their own justice system and policing, the rights of their own foreign interaction economically and politically, the right to worship as they feel led, and all that within a framework of a representative democratic country 
with something akin to the Bill of Rights. In other words, something that protects you from democracy itself, because democracy has to be more than two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. So looking at how in this self-determined area where we can all have a say, how do we also protect the minorities within the minority areas? For example, in Shan State, or even Karen State, it's not just Karen or Shan there. There's other ethnic groups that are minorities within a minority area. So I think most ethnics would like self-determination with, a, with democracy, but also some guarantee for ethnic rights. And they're willing to do that within a framework of a federal Burma. So everyone has their, their place. And I believe that's what the NUG is now standing for, which is new generally for a Burman group from the majority ethnicity, which is the Burmans, to say, yes, we want a federal system. It strikes me not just as really wonderful and stupendous on the part of Myanmar that they're trying to aim for this and trying to build this, but it almost seems like this is something that would go in the history books of the entire region that something like this would even be possible and would be a beacon and a way to show the world what was possible in ways that I don't know if anyone could have ever predicted uh, could happen. I mean, it could be a signal for many others in the region of what was even a possibility here. Yes. And Burma has one of the most diverse populations with over a hundred different ethnic groups and many different religions and many different histories all together in one country. And right now, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to support the people of Burma, as this is the first time I've ever seen the unity that I see now between the ethnic Burmans and the ethnic minority groups, where the Burmans are saying, we're sorry, we always were just looking at our freedom and our life. Now we know what it's like to be under the oppression of your own government. Please forgive us. We need to work together for a new federal union of Burma. Not a union of Burma that's federal, but a federal one first. And they put, they put the emphasis there, the Burmans, the National Unity Government, and others. And at the same time, they need the ethnics. They, many of them have to escape to ethnic areas, or they have to get training there, or their supplies come through there. And so they, they need the ethnic people. At the same time, the ethnics need them, because the ethnics comprise 40, at most 50% of the population altogether. But individually, they are just representing small percentages and of a country of about 60 million, the Karen, I think, are maybe a 10 million. So max. And so they all need each other. And I think more than ever, both, both sides realize that, the Burman pro-democracy people and the ethnic pro-democracy people. So I, I think this is a good time for the international community to encourage that, but also take concrete steps, direct assistance. In the, in the ethnic areas, as well as the cities and plains. Recognition and hold host meetings between the ethnic pro-democracy groups and the Burmans. And I think that's helping them. We can't solve their problems, but we can create a space to help them solve these problems. And there's nobody just doing this alone. There's other countries, Russia, China, and other countries that are stepping in on the side of the dictators. So this is not something that we should just leave alone. 
we should help as much as we can with this, with goodwill. Yeah, absolutely. And help them to achieve peace in their time and safety, but also recognizing this is something of a beacon for humanity that this very thing could happen there in the midst of the history in the region where it's taking place. It's just a an opportunity uh, even for people not from that place that doesn't come along very often in a lifetime. And as you mentioned, the diversity there is uh, is also something pretty remarkable. So um, on that note of being in country and having this wider and deeper experience of uh, of of being on the ground and knowing things there, uh, even though um, even the people in the Burmese cities, those Burmans who haven't been in the ethnic areas, don't necessarily understand the reality and the context in the way that you do, and certainly those ethnic villages, and you've been there for decades, uh, trekking across from one place to the other. So I'm wondering what you might like our audience to understand about the nature of the conflict, either either what we're seeing now or just what it feels like to have lived in those villages for many of the residents for, for their lives that you feel are not really properly coming out by reading stories or seeing images. Yes, um, people have different experiences and narratives and understandings of what their history is. And, and, and then they have different experiences what the present reality is. I think for many of the ethnic groups, like the Mon, the Arakan, the Karen, they feel, and they can pretty much prove, they were there before the, the majority Burmans came in a few thousand years ago. And so they feel like this is my home, not all of Burma, just the parts they're in. And then when later on, when the Burman ethnicity came in, in large population numbers with expansionistic ideas and an aggressiveness, similar to the uh, Westerners that came to America from Europe, my ancestors that were numerous and motivated and active and spreading out in this new land. I think the Burmans were not that different in that sense. But then they meet the ethnics. And there's been war ever since all recorded history between the Burmans, who set up um, a series of kingdoms, and the ethnic groups. And many of the ethnic groups have been enslaved and hurt badly by the majority Burman under these different kings. Well, World War II comes up, and... The Burmans generally ally themselves with the Japanese, thinking they'll throw the British out, and who by then colonized Burma. And the ethnics predominantly joined the British and the Americas and the Allies because they said, when the British colonized Burma, it was like our father had come in to give justice. One jot or one denomination of money for you, one for me. We're all the same. And then, as one leader said, America's like our mother, England's like our father. England brought justice and fairness. America brought education and a new way of looking at faith, at God, above demons, above the cycle of your karma. And depending on who was talking, most of the ethnics were not Buddhists. They were animists and spirit worshipers. And they felt they they knew the living God, but they felt separated and, and tormented or oppressed by Demons. This is what many ethics would say. So they said, oh, we know about God. We've heard about Jesus. We've heard about the, the book. 
and we want to go that way. And that, that was, those are some um, spiritual aspirations. But then there was also things like education that came in with foreigners and this idea that everyone was equal. But, but on the Burman side, it's very understandable. They're like, we don't want to be under the British. We, we're running things. We don't like being under these foreigners. We're Buddhist, and we have, maybe more importantly, we're Burmans. We have our own way. And so when the Japanese came and offered independence, the Burmans took it, and the ethnics joined the Allies. Well, at the end of the war, when the Japanese were losing, the, the Burmans switched sides. And as Aung San, the father of Aung San Suu Kyi, Aung San's the first, he was the leader of the Burman group, and he was the first leader of modern Burma. When he said he was going to switch sides, the British said, oh, you're only doing that because we're winning. And he said, yes, why else would I do it? <laughs> so, because he's looking out what he thinks is the best interest of his country. So, World War II is over, independence comes to Burma, Burma is granted this freedom, but very quickly, the Burman majority begins to oppress the ethnic groups in their civil war up to this day, 1949 to now, so 72 years. And that war has not stopped. And what's really amazing to me is that the ethnics, without any large-scale outside support, had managed to keep fighting. I don't know of any guerrilla movement that's lasted that long without outside support. At the same time, they cannot defeat the series of dictators that have come to Burma. And I think bringing it up to present, this is the best opportunity that I've ever seen in my life and, and I've read about. Because this... This standing against the coup, this standing against, against the regime by people of all walks of life from all ethnicities is more united and sustained than I've ever seen. The coup started February the 1st, right after there were protests and then there was resistance. And despite crackdowns and slaughters by the Burma military and shooting rifle grenades into crowds, strafing with airplanes, attacking with attack helicopters, heavy artillery, in spite of all that, people haven't given up at all. There's more resistance groups that have sprung up. So at the same time, there's not much coordinated action between the different groups themselves and between the ethnic groups in those groups. And why is that? Well, because each group is very weak. There is no big outside support. They're just fighting to survive in their own areas. I mean, maybe it's useful to think, remember in World War II, you know, France was a pretty unified country in the sense that most people were of the same race, most people of the same religion, with some exceptions, and kind of the same background and ideals. But when the Germans invaded, France not only tried to resist the Germans, they disagreed how to do it. There was, there was um, Republicans, there were people who longed for the old ways of Napoleon, there were communists, there were anarchists, they were nationalists. There were all these different groups fighting the Germans, but they also didn't agree with each other. And, and the weight of the German army was so huge, they couldn't do much against it. And if you study World War II, it wasn't until the Allied troops landed at Normandy, opened up a whole new front, and really began to break the German resistance. And at the same time, able to get more supplies to the resistance. This was the time when the resistance began to be unified and had the material to fight together against the Germans. It was much more fighting against the Germans, much more effective after that. So my point is to look at Burma and say, oh, they should be unified. We, we can't even do that. Look at our own country in America. How unified are we? And if we're being crushed by an outsider, yeah, you may want, you would have a common enemy, but you may not have the means to do things. So most of the ethnic groups, 
would like to be more unified and act in more concert with other ethnic groups, but there's they barely have enough weapon systems, food, and supplies to, to just defend themselves. So that's where we're at. And my prayer is that the Burma military will tire of killing their own people and that they'll have less recruits and that leaders within the Burma government will realize this is not, this is evil and we're not going to win anyways. And then I, my prayer is that people in the pro-democracy side and the ethnic side can have mercy and find a way to say, how can we negotiate a different way? And I think for me personally, that doesn't mean negotiating a compromise of a certain watered down dictatorship. It means negotiating an exit of the dictators with mercy for them too. But, but saying on one hand, we love you. You're our family. We don't want to kill you. We'll forgive you. And on the other hand, this government is not acceptable. You have to step down and we can have elections and you can try again, but this way it's not acceptable. So you're doing both at the same time. That's a great answer. Thanks. And I really appreciate bringing into this sense of people on the outside, especially I would say those with privilege and those who are able to have the luxury of certain opinions with the safety and luxury of knowing that they have basic security and safety in their lives and are able to give these opinions to those who have, have never had that luxury and safety and don't have it now. And I think that what is really needed is to understand what what it is the people are going through, how they feel, what options are in front of them, and understand how different the life looks there for those that are are, are in a place where they have a sense of privilege and a, a sense of safety. And I also really appreciate bringing in the examples looking at it. I've never thought of comparing it with France. And that's that's really interesting to look at a country that is much more of the same type of people and background and all those different motivations that were happening at the time and how that splintered and this this is human nature and so to stand back away from that and be giving certain kind of dictums or judgments of how things should be or how different groups that have their own unique history and perspective need to be working together i think that that you're you're really hitting on a powerful point that yes things are not perfect and governments are not perfect and we know this but that uh, show us um, show us a place in time or history that has had that sense of unification and uh, and done things the right way at every step and and you're absolutely right this is best we have and let's support it in the ways that we can that doesn't mean to uh, just to, to 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 cover up the blemishes and pretend it's something it's not but at the same time to see the possibility and the potential and that bringing in good humanitarian values as a way to shape and work with what they're trying to do that's not just unprecedented to Burma but is uh, again I'd go back to arguing is 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 pretty uh, something that would stand out in the history books as being fairly unprecedented for what we've seen in any country at any time to be able to pull off so I I, I really do appreciate that point thank you yeah and I think also we have to deal with the reality we can tell people you should do this, you should be that. They're not. And then you have to ask yourself, how much do I care? What can I do? None of us can do everything. But but we can all do something about something. And to me, I, I just start with prayer. You know, we're right now, for example, Afghanistan's raging. And our work is in Burma and Iraq and Syria, not Afghanistan. I've been there numerous times, but that's not our role. But I'm also open. Okay. You can we can blame lots of people. And I, and I I think the debate in Afghanistan, you can have a, a credible 
rational debate whether we should stay or we should leave. But the way that we're leaving is absolutely immoral and incompetent. So, you know, what do we do about it? Well, maybe FBR will be involved in Afghanistan like we are in Syria, but maybe not. Maybe we don't have that capacity. Maybe it's not our role. So my point of that is there's lots of needs in the world. But when you feel called to a people and you see a need you can meet, that's not it's not helpful to start enumerating all the things they should have done. Because mm-hmm. if there wasn't a need, you don't need to be there. Obviously, mm-hmm. things are not right. So get used to it. And, you know, in our own country, we have a very unique um, beginning with uh, with pretty like minded people that first came over, at least in some groups and a special group of people, mostly led by faith and a different set of circumstances. But even then, on one hand, we left out some very important moral values slavery being one of them. And so had some huge blind spots. And but on the other hand, we still didn't do it alone. The French were very key in helping us get our country. If France hadn't been fighting England on and off the whole time, you know, just completely independent of us and in concert with us, we don't know what kind of history this would be. I mean, probably America would eventually break free anyway, but we just didn't do it all by ourselves. And Certainly in World War II, nobody did this by themselves. You know, as an American, it's America was the most powerful and the most important of the allies by far. But if the Russians hadn't been fighting, we how many tank divisions they churn up in 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 Russia. So my point is we all we're in this together. The people of Burma count, and I think the reasons to be involved in Burma, one is love and human need and it's right to help them. Second is geopolitical. A free Burma is good for everybody in the world, even those that don't want that freedom. It's actually good for them. And and economically, now you have a good partner right in the middle of Southeast Asia. So I think we have um, moral and political security and economic reasons why we should be involved. And the United States has the capacity to help even more. You know, one thing I have seen the U.S. do, they've been very strong on condemning the dictatorship. They've been very supportive of helping people escape and and also is providing some relief. So I think the U.S. has done has done much good, but I think we could do more. And that's that's my request. And I think one of the things I'd request is they recognize the ethnic armed groups and the NUG. Mm. And I'm also glad in hearing in your last talk, bringing in the personal with the wider international actors and where that all fits in, because that's uh, those are the last couple questions I have to close out the interview is looking at your own engagement and your decision for engagement. And first, just simply speaking, learning about your story, I understand that service to others plays a very outsized role in your motivation for life. And uh, I'm wondering if you could share a little more about why this sense of service to others is so important to you and your family, because let's be honest, this is not a value that is seen in every person uh, universally uh, across the the extent to which you embrace this service to others and your, your entire family does is something unique. And so I'd like to hear from you and describing in your own words, why that value has become so predominant in your life. Well, thanks. I think I was thinking as you're asking that, how encouraging you are. 
and also that the the work we do is impossible without other people helping us. And so we're not, we're just one part of it. a much larger team of people who care. And just this last Sunday, I was speaking at a church in Cody, Wyoming. We, we're in the U.S. right now, and the kids are all rodeoing. The girls barrel race, Pete rides steers and bulls, but right now he's focused on roping. You know, you're riding this horse and roping the steer. It was fun every night. And then on Sunday, I went to speak. And as I walked to the church before my turn to speak, I saw one of my friends show up that I only see once a year in Wyoming. He's a, a rancher. And I stepped out and hugged him and we talked and I still had time before I was asked to go up. And he said, Dave, something I've been thinking about, praying about, is you know we're all servants. Tell me one job in the world that's not a service. Tell me one. I was thinking, huh, a president? He's supposed to serve the country. The janitor, he's supposed to clean up the country. The teacher, it goes on and on. But somehow in human in human involvement, we sometimes elevate some servants as bigger than other servants. Oh, this, this servant's more important than that servant. That servant's more important than this servant. We're all really in service, no matter what we do. You, know, you, you go out there farming, well, you're providing a service. You're feeding yourself, your family, and others if you have left over. And so I think the life of service is actually one that all humans are involved in. And it helps be reminded of that to humble ourselves and also to realize our interdependence and that it's a good thing to serve. So I feel grateful that the part of service we have is to help people who are oppressed and to stand with them and to speak for them and to provide any assistance we can. It's just a great feeling to feel useful and doing this feels useful and good. Not that the people we serve are always good, not that we're always good because we're not and they're not. We're just humans, but it's the best we can do to add to the beauty of the world, to um, support each other's yearnings for freedom and for a fulfilling life and to allow each one to define that for themselves and to stand for that right. You know, there's that old song, um, it came out in the 60s or 70s, I can't remember, but it's called No Man is an Island. And it says, no man is an island, no man stands alone. Each man's joy is joy to me. Each man's grief is my own. We need one another, so I will defend. Each man as my brother, each man as my friend. I think that's a great song. And that's how I want to live. And I'm not doing it alone. People like you, you know, people who support us in prayer or money or volunteering or speaking for us if they're in Congress, we're all in this together. Right. And that last question was looking more at you and and how you've oriented your life. Uh, speaking personally, since the coup broke, my home life has really consisted of little more than supporting the people against this terror in any way that I can. But I have to admit, I haven't lived a life of activism and service to the extent that you have, and I think probably few others have, despite your uh, your modesty. And, and it's fair that uh, of the wider service that everyone is providing in their own way. But in any sense, this level of engagement that I'm currently taking on and have been for the last half year has been somewhat new for me to adjust to. And as I take this on, I'm becoming increasingly conscious of the many ways that people are choosing to engage and not in the world around them. 
And so as I was preparing for this interview, one of the questions I really wanted to ask you as someone who has decided already for to devote everything in your life towards your beliefs, and this is probably something you've thought about deep in your soul and having to come to this decision and choose this path. So you've had some more time to reflect on it than, than I have. What do you believe it takes for a person to decide to engage or not engage in the world? And of course, this is not a, uh, a, a black and white question of what is needed and what is not, but take it as you will. I'm sure there's some wide range of possibilities uh, or tendencies or potentialities of what is bringing someone or leading someone to a greater engagement and leading someone else to decide not to and to to be more selfish or self-involved or or whatever whatever word is there but simply to not engage at the same level so what are your thoughts on what it takes someone to decide to turn that thing on and engage well i think a couple things i thought of as you're saying that for me personally as someone who believes in god and believes in his son, Jesus, it's prayer. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? How do I do it? I give up all my ways. I will obey you. And then listen with your heart or your spirit or your mind for what comes. That's my first step. And the other two things I thought of were two sayings that I've heard. One, my wife was, I don't know who she was quoting, but she said, you know, our mission is where the world's greatest need and our greatest love intersect. And then someone named John Piper said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive because the world needs people who come alive. And so I think to me, you look at a problem and you go, okay, is that, is that, is that and for me, I always just pray, God, should I do something? Is that something I can do? What would I do? What if that was me or my kids? What would I do? And it may be, man, that's too far away. I just can't get there. And I have these other responsibilities. So I'm just going to pray for them. I'm going to send money or I'm going to give them a phone call. Or I'm going to talk to my congressman or no, I'm going to go. I mean, in Burma, the way it happened for us was I was invited by the Wa tribe from Northern Burma in 1993. Please come and help us. Okay. I didn't know that much about Burma. I grew up in Thailand. I still didn't know that much about Burma, but I had the invitation. I had the, I had the ability to go. And I went, my wife and I, when we got married and went, that was our honeymoon. And then I began to learn about the, the fighting in Burma and the suffering and the oppression. And I just remember thinking, you know, killing, rape, murder is wrong. I'm going to stand against it. Number one, because all oppression is wrong. Number two, because I care about these people and they care about me as love. And then Number three, I think, as far as I can tell, this is my place in the world. This is something that God has me do. And the last one, I like it. I like action, hiking up and down mountains and making a difference. And it's, it's a great feeling whether you're you know, giving someone a blanket who's freezing or pulling a tooth that's rotten and giving them pain or giving them food or saying, I'm going to tell your story and then telling your story in Congress or to the newspaper to put a light on it. All those things make people feel better, make people feel valued. And then I feel useful. So to me, we can't go everywhere and do everything. And I, I mentioned Afghanistan because that's going on right now. We've been there before. And I just pray, God, I don't want to be distracted from what's happening in Burma because this is a disaster in Afghanistan. 
Uh, at the same time, we've got a hundred teams there. I have a really good staff. I just contacted them. They're like, stay in America. Don't rush back. Keep speaking for us. We got it here. I was like, wow. And so I, I think we all have different capacities and we have to, we don't want to be irresponsible. We want to be able to respond constantly to what we committed to. But for me, I try to let God determine my capacity. And we, you know, we've been invited to Nigeria to bring the Freeburn Rangers there to the Central African Republic, um, Ukraine. And we haven't gone to those places because as we prayed and thought, it just didn't have enough confirmations for us to say go. We didn't have the capacity. So our capacity right now is focused on Burma, but also still in Iraq and Syria. And right now for Afghanistan, we are praying for people. We're trying to connect people to get flights out, but we haven't done anything more than that. And I, I'm adding that because I think that's true for all of us. You, you're living your life, you're doing your work, you're, you're responsible for all these things and something new comes up and you go, can I do that? Do I have the capacity? Is it crazy? Will I make a difference? Will I be then irresponsible what I'm doing now? My only answer to that is I just pray and I discuss it with my family and my teammates and go, is this something we're supposed to do? And then we ask for confirmations like, you know, God, it'd be really good if this, we're supposed to do this, this one would invite us and that door would open then. Okay. So I think for each person, each person has to determine what it is they're responsible to do. And I like this definition of responsibility. It's ability to respond. And so I look and go, okay, my, my response may just be, writing a check or writing my congressman or my response may be go there myself or my response is advocacy and raising awareness. So I think each of us have to decide what that is. But for us, I'm grateful that we can go on the ground. We love it. And we love those people. Yeah. And I think that's a great answer to be able to look first generally at just the sense of engagement or not. That's the first general question. Do, do I decide to care? Do I decide to take this on? Do I open up my heart for creating greater space than something of my immediate needs? And that, that was what the question was oriented towards is just looking at what does this mean to decide to engage or not? And then you took it in these more specific definitions of dependent, which I fully agree with. And as I've tried to chart and understand my own role and look around me, I've, I've seen as one of the uh, greater truths and realities out there that everyone is deciding and figuring out who they are, what they can offer. That comes after one has already made the decision of whether or not they have decided to engage, which was the general uh, parameters of, of the question of looking at uh, what does it take for this thing to go on or off. And then to get more specific on my side, the thing I'm also wondering about is not just this sense of do I engage or not? That's the first step. Do I create space in my heart or not? Because, you know, let's face it, even to to listen to this podcast, to read an article, that is those small things are taking time out of your day and your mental space to put it and think about someone else and something else. That is a decision on some minor level to engage that can carry you into uh, into further possibilities of what you can do. But beyond that, there's also a greater sacrifice of safety, of comfort, of risk, of everything else, where if you take the metaphor of a house on fire or some gruesome car accident, that 
these are situations that many people will turn away from. Um, these days, unfortunately, some will be voyeurs and will want to uh, watch or even take pictures of whatever's unfolding for some kind of sensationalism. But very few will actually run towards that. And that is another kind of engagement to actually run towards the, da- the damage and the carnage and the danger and to do so at sacrifice to one's comfort and safety and 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 home and uh, whatever else one holds dear. And so uh, to to check in with you about this again, because you are also someone who personally and as a family has chosen to run towards the fire. And as you mentioned eloquently, you can't run towards every fire. We know that. There are fires that happen that all we can perhaps do is read an article or, or write a check to. But in other ways, where you felt called, where you have come to see that you have a role and you've seen that fire, you have been willing to make enormous sacrifices to run towards those fires where others would would not and would run away or um, perhaps uh, sensationalize, but you have run towards them. So what are your thoughts on what goes through the mind? What happens within the mind for one, and we're seeing, and before I finish the question, I should mention we're seeing that, of course, in Burma today to a remarkable extent. How many people there could be lying low and even even in a bloody dictatorship, how they could be staying off the radar and yet they are facing those dangers and risks by running towards the fire in their own country in ways that we frankly haven't seen in 88 and, and 2007 before when these came. So what are your thoughts on what it takes to not just engage but to sacrifice so much and in, in actually running towards the danger instead of running away from it? I think that's love. It's like for your kids, your wife, your husband, you run, you don't think about the danger. You think about them and you, you're cognizant of the danger, but, but you're going to find a way around or through it if possible to help that person you love and care about. So I think the first thing is love. And if you don't have it, ask for it. God, give me love and put yourself in their shoes. So I, I, I think that that's what motivates me. When I look at those um, running into the danger or trying to help, I think also it's where you're called. I mean, you can't go everywhere, but this is where we were invited and we know these people. And so we're going we're gonna to do all we can to take action as we want someone to do for us. In Burma right now, the people are doing it and they're willing to put everything on the table. I think when I look back at the, the history of America, I think we discussed this earlier, but the people who wrote the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they said when they, when they took on England for their freedom, they said we commit our lives, our fortune, our sacred honor. They put everything on the table, and they won. I think the dictators have put everything on the table. Their lives, their fortune, their sacred honor, it's all on the table. And if you don't put everything on the table it's very hard to win. So the people of Burma have realized that and they put it all on the table too. So they're just as dedicated. So you have the dedication to to what I think is evil and you have dedication to good. It's an asymmetrical warfare in that the Burma military is going to keep crushing and doing bad. The pro-democracy groups, the people who want change, don't really have the same power to be symmetrical, to go toe-to-toe and win. But 
their cause is good and it's just, and they put everything on the table. They're willing to lose everything. And I think they will prevail. I, I believe they will. I hope they will. That's where we're going. I remember when um, the Japanese captured some British soldiers in World War II who were helping the Karen and they, and they killed them. They put a sign up on their grave saying, here lie the champions of lost causes. But the cause didn't lose. And I think that love is the greatest thing to live for. It's the only thing to die for. So you're on safe ground when you're doing something in love. And I think, it, you know, those are the times I always evaluate my actions. Am I doing this because I'm mad, because I'm proud, because I'm trying to be relevant, I'm trying to prove something, um, or am I doing it because of love? And it helps me, especially when I'm afraid, to check, 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 go, no, no, no. I'm doing this for the right reason. And I'm scared, but it's worth dying for. I don't want to die, but it's actually worth it. It's not foolish. And I think nothing done of love is crazy. I don't know if you saw that that video we just put out about planting rice under fire. I did. I did. That was also, that blew me away. What, why don't you describe for the listeners, for those who haven't? Yeah, well, we were we were with the Karen. This is um, June last month. No, it's two months ago now. And we were up in northern Karen State, Muthra District or Papoon District in Luthaw Township. Burma Army has increased their attacks since the coup, more displacement, daily shooting from their camps. And there was a village called Samupla. It's below, um, it's a beautiful valley, at 4,000 feet, nice and cool, lots of streams, verdant fields, flat um, rice fields irrigated with dikes around it, water coming in. And this was planting season. But this village is having a hard time planting because the Burma had built up a camp near the village that overlooked their rice fields. And it would shoot at anyone who tried to plant rice. And we were doing a kids program when, when the shooting started again. And this widow came to us and said, yeah, I don't have a husband. I just got kids. I got to feed them. I got to plant this whole rice field by myself. But I, every time I go out there, they try to kill me. They shoot at me from this camp, which is about three, 400 yards away up on a hill. And when she told us that, it was horrible. And we prayed, you know, what should we do? And I noticed that rain started heavier and the clouds were down. And I looked around and I said, you know, we'll help you plant rice. And it's not crazy. Look, the clouds are low enough. The camp will be obscured. They won't be able to see us. And it's raining. I think we can try. And I prayed about it and asked my family and team, you know, is this something we can do? And we all felt yes. And I said, we're going to help you. She goes, hey, are you, um, are you white people faster than us, than us brown people? <laughs> are you faster than a bullet? <laughs> because you better be here and get shot. And she started laughing. I laughed with her. And we all, but we said, okay, we'll try. So we went out to the, to the rice field and there was a small stream bed and a, a grove of bamboo between our, where we came in on the rice field. And I had my family, my wife and kids and other team members wait in that little creek bed because we don't know what's going to happen. And five of us went out. As we walked out in the open the rice field, I suddenly realized the rain had stopped, the clouds had lifted, and the Burma Army just opened up within seconds. And if you look at the video, with that part's not cut. I, I say to the, we have cameramen, every team has a videographer shooting film all the time. And we have medics and we have good life club counselors and reporters. But we always have a, a videographer. And the purpose of the videographer is to put a light on what's happening, to tell the story, for the honor 
and sake of the victims to know that this is not being kept secret. The world's going to know what happened. For the perpetrators to see, this is what you're doing. And for the world to know, this is what's happening. So this is why we, we shoot video as much as we can. So I turned to my video guy and I said, look, if you start shooting at us, pray and run. And I just barely finished those words. The Burma Army opened up the machine gun. Bop, 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 and bullets are hitting on both sides through the, through the water. Actually, I didn't see that. Um, but my, my daughter, who was behind, and about four of my teammates said, man, there was a stitch of bullets in the water, just like the movies, between you and everybody else. There's five of us out there. And the bullets just missed us, went, just stitched the water. But I definitely heard the bullets, and I heard them wing by me and crack into the bamboo behind us. We ran behind a clump of bamboo. My, my son filmed part of this and jumped down in the ditch. The lady who'd come with us was, you know, yelling for her one daughter who'd come, get down, get down, get down. And my wife is yelling for my kids, get down. You know, everybody got down. The, the shooting stopped and we're like praying, what do we do now? And I mean, that was an attempt. We didn't, actually one of us, one of my team got out ahead of me. He actually planted a little bit of rice for that shooting, but we didn't accomplish very much. And then I prayed and I thought, I don't want to stop here. I want to try again. Number one, to show that lady she counts. Number two, not to be defeated by this evil. Number three, because you need rice. Guess what you're going to eat? Because you're not going to, if you don't plant it, you don't eat it. So I prayed about it and I asked my family and team, I'm going to go out and do it again. They're like, oh, are you sure? I said, we need to do something. So we prayed and then I crawled out from a different angle along below a dike, keeping as low as I could, slowly crawled out and planted a few clumps of rice. That was all I dared plant. I thought, the moment they see me, I won't make it back. I'm way out in the open. So I came back and I thought, okay. I didn't accomplish much. And I told her that, you know, we only planted a little rice. And she's just laughing. She said, yeah, I'm glad you're not dead. And I said, but we love you. We love you. And we'll do everything we can for you. And we'll pray God helps you plant the rice. And we did. And the next day, we had to go to another village that needed help. So we went there. We found out that two days later, that widow, along with other villagers, had crawled out at night with no lights, which means it's very hard to make straight lines and planted the entire field. And that was to me, was an answer to prayer. So I just tell that story because that's what just happened. But also that in life, you can't fix everything, but you can do something. And for us, we didn't do anything big and heroic. We didn't only plant a little rice. We did not stop the Burma army, but we did something. And that something was an immediate help, but I think it helped motivate everyone around saying, hey, we can do better than this. We just wait till night. We'll do this together. So I think that's what we can do in life. And in Burma, we're privileged to work with wonderful people like that widow and privileged to have team members that risk their lives to help do this. And, you know, I had to ask one of them to teach me. I planted rice years ago. I mean, many years ago. So to, get, to do it right, to remember how to put it in, put the seedlings in. So we're all doing this together as a team and people praying for us from outside the country and, and sending money so we can buy things to give people. It's all one team. That's that's really a beautiful story. Thanks for sharing. I saw the video, but I had no idea the context surrounding it before, during, and then after, several days after what was able to happen. So I, I, I just, I really appreciate that being shared. And I think that's a great story to end on. Uh, before we close, I just want to ask if there's anything else you want to use this platform to get out, anything that my questions haven't touched upon that you want to make sure gets heard by listeners? Well, first, thank you. And I think 
what you're doing is crucial that people remember the people of Burma who are our family in this world and crucial to all our well-being. I think I just wanted to reiterate the three things. They need immediate humanitarian help in the cities and the mountains. They need to be recognized as legitimate, as real people. The, the National Union government, the ethnic armed groups be recognized. And the third is we need to intervene. And intervention just might mean more money or more supplies. It might mean physical intervention. But it might mean words like this is we're going to sanction you because killing your own people in the streets is wrong. So I, I think I want to encourage the listeners to pray and to be involved in any way they think they can and to, and to contact their government representatives. You know, Afghanistan is rightly leading the news now, but it's not the only story. And the people of Burma need help. And mostly they can help themselves, but they, they do need people, people as much as they can to help them survive this and also to help them navigate. I, I think one thing the U.S. can do for example, we can't solve the problems in Burma. We can help make a space where the people can solve the problems. So that's my appeal. And I'm really grateful for your love and care and that I could share so many stories. And we'll keep going. Our teams are all active right now. They said, you know, we got this right now. The rains have come. Burma has slowed down a little bit. Go to America and tell the story. So thank you for helping me tell a story. That was an explosion just went off with the um, from Burma Army Camp as the kids are singing songs. But just heard one. The KPE. So it's a sound of shooting at this distance. Mortars and machine guns. Four mortar rounds. And then machine gun bursts and rifles back and forth. shooting I think I don't know if it picks up on the recording it's always quieter on a recorder after today's discussion it should be clear to everyone just how dire the situation is in Myanmar. We are doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. 
And because our nonprofit is now in a position to transfer funds directly to the protest movement, please also consider letting others know that there is now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable and to those who are especially impacted by this organized state terror. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburmaoneword.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration.